Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Staff. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Adam and I are coming to you from Stats Newsroom here in Boston, Massachusetts. Rebecca is recording from Stats San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, June 14th, and here's what's on the docket this week. An unofficial party during the bio convention featured topless female dancers with company logos painted on their bodies. We'll ask, what were the organizers thinking? The fatty liver stock bubble keeps inflating. But lots of big questions remain about how the drugs and development for NASH will be used and paid for in the real world. UC San Francisco cardiologist Ethan Weiss joins us to weigh in on the NASH boom from a clinician's point of view. Stat multimedia journalist Alex Hogan grew up in Somerville, Massachusetts with a group of friends. And one by one, his friends have been dying from opioid addiction. Alex joins us to talk about his documentary film that chronicles those losses, which you can now pay to watch on Stat's website. And finally, we'll do another lightning round packed with hot takes on the revival of a female libido pill and the latest doings of a pair of biotech entrepreneurs with a flair for showmanship. Let's start by talking about the big story that's been buzzing on Twitter. Critics blasted what seems like another tone-deaf, tasteless, sexist industry party. This one featured topless female dancers with company logos painted on their bodies. It happened during the bio convention in Boston last week, but we should note right away, it has no official ties to bio. In fact, it's called Party at Bio Not Associated with Bio, or PabNab. And so it doesn't draw the industry's top brass and keynote speakers, but rather it's for the many sort of hangers-on and and lower-level employees to go dancing and perhaps consume a little too much alcohol. And PabNab, as as we'll get into later, has been problematic since long before the organizers decided that sponsored topless female dancers was a good idea during the, I always feel weird describing it, but like cultural moment we're in with respect to sexism and in particular how women are treated in the workplace. And this, of course, is an industry gathering. So let's break down what we know about what happened at this PabNab party. Uh, Rebecca, you verified a photo taken at the event, correct? Yeah, that's right. The photo was taken by Kate Strayer-Benton. She's director of strategy at Momenta Pharmaceuticals. She attended the party and then spoke out about what she witnessed. So we didn't publish the photo in an effort to respect the dancer's privacy, but I can describe it for you. In the photo I viewed, a dancer wears only a crown of flowers, a pair of boots, and a pair of bikini bottoms. Her body is, is painted with the logo of the investment firm Alpha Blue Ocean on her abdomen and the biotech company Selexis on her right thigh. So when you talked to the organizers, how did they explain the decision to have topless entertainment? So one of the party organizers, the head of the consulting group C14 Consulting, defended the party in an interview with BioCentury, the website which first broke the story. Uh, And that organizer hasn't responded to my emails, but she told BioCentury that the party was, quote, edgy and artsy, end quote, and in keeping with the spirit of previous iterations of the party. So, Rebecca, who's fault was this? Do we feel like people should be held accountable for this party? So I think the knee-jerk reaction has been to blame the sponsor companies whose logos literally got branded on these women. But according to my reporting, these sponsors were blindsided. Both Selexis and Alpha Blue Ocean said they had no idea their logos were going to be used this way. The CEO at one of those firms told me he'd been told that his logo would be used on bracelets, flyers, beverage glasses, 
normal things to get sponsored. So I think the blame, if we are going to assign blame, should be directed at the organizers of the party, since it really does seem that they did this without the sponsor's knowledge and permission. And so as you can imagine, this did not play very well on Twitter among a more general audience who sees topless dancers, drug industry, and makes the very natural connection of, hey, aren't your drugs really expensive? And don't you say that you need to charge that much to fund research? Why are you spending money on topless dancers? So one of the tweets I saw came from a, a woman named Amy Belt Raimundo. Her tweet said, nothing says the high cost of drugs is justified like topless dancers with drug company logos. I also liked the uh, Patients for Affordable Drugs seized the moment and sent a press release that I got within hours of Rebecca, your story going up. The headline was, Topless dancers at bio events symbolize excess in industry that continues to rob America. So Rebecca, what kind of feedback have you gotten uh, on the story that you wrote? I've heard from lots of readers on Twitter and by email who are deeply troubled about the message that this sends to women in the industry at a time when biopharma is already grappling with a pretty serious diversity problem. But, you know, I've also heard from some people defending the party. And Rebecca, what was the reaction from the, the trade group Bio and sort of top biotech executives? They went into crisis mode. I would say Bio quickly and forcefully condemned what happened. Bio, in fact, is warning member companies that sponsored this year's PabNab that if they sponsor the event again in the future, they'll be kicked out of the trade group. Late on Tuesday night, I got a call from John Marignori, CEO of Alnylam's Pharmaceuticals and chairman of Bio. Here's what he had to say. We cannot stand for, you know, an event like that that is debasing and is, um, frankly, not consistent with our standards around inclusion. So I find this annoying, not because I have any defense to mount of topless dancing at an industry event. Rather, I've known about PabNab for years. And if you just take a scroll through PabNab's official Facebook page, you'll find their Wild West party where attendees showed up in Native American headdress. You'll find their Angels and Demons party where professional dancers are wearing well, the, more than what they were wearing at this most recent one, but I don't think you would describe them as not objectified. My point is, by condemning this PabNab, Bio is sort of retroactively saying it was fine with everything I just described, but draws the line here. And that to me, it just, it feels kind of disingenuous. To be fair, Mariganori told me he had no idea this party existed until the outcry this week. And I believe that. But I think Damien's point still stands. It's hardly an open secret in the industry what goes down at this party. I feel like we all need to sort of step back and maybe take a little bit of a deep breath here. I mean, I realize a lot of this is coming up in the Me Too movement, which is very important. But at the end of the day, this is a party at a nightclub. You know, sort of to conflate the, this party with kind of the more serious issues of harassment and discrimination uh, that have come up in the Me Too movement, I, I think that's a mistake. I think that the worst thing that happened at this PABNA party and the thing that shouldn't have happened is the logos being plastered, branded, however you want to describe that, on the dancers. Okay, that crossed the line. But the fact that this party exists and it has existed for years, lots of people go to this party. And from what I see, they seem to have a really good time, men and women. I think that maybe everyone just needs to relax. I do think we should go back, though, to the kind of you know proverbial woman who is in the industry and the message that that sends to her. You know, there's so much talk about diversity on panels, diversity in the boardroom. I do think that if you go to a party like this 
and you see women objectified in this way, I think that's not the message that makes you want to stay in the industry. Rebecca, do you think there will be a PADNAB 2019? It's something to watch. I think with the threat that Mariganori made, it'll be interesting to see who, if anyone, funds this party. Because as with anything in this industry, it's not going to happen without money. Now let's talk about the booming area of drug development that's been in the news this week, the fatty liver disease known as NASH. Here's a fun fact about Madrigal Pharmaceuticals, one of the many drug companies developing new treatments for NASH. Madrigal has only nine full-time employees and a NASH drug not yet in late-stage clinical trials. But it already has a market value approaching $5 billion. The company's now hired a boutique investment firm to help it explore a sale after receiving takeover interest from other drug makers. And that's according to a story from Bloomberg, citing sources familiar with the decision. And earlier this week, Adam remarked, uh, perhaps with a bit of snark, that the easiest way to double or triple a drug company's stock price is to simply announce positive results from a clinical trial of a Nash drug. It doesn't even have to be true. Your stock will skyrocket. Yeah, that's right. I did write that. And, you know, I think the biotech world is experiencing a Nash mania stock valuation bubble at the moment, which is potentially a big problem because there's a lot of risk and uncertainty about how these Nash drugs will be used and paid for down the road, assuming one or more of them reaches the market. To dive deeper into this topic, we invited an expert onto our podcast. We are joined by UC San Francisco cardiologist Ethan Weiss. He's here to give us a clinician's view of the NASH boom. So one of the reasons why we wanted to have Ethan Weiss on the podcast was that he was tweeting a lot about the magical pharmaceuticals data in NASH that had come out recently. He had some thoughtful things to say about those data and the implications of those data. So that's why we have him here. Hi, Ethan. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Adam. So maybe just recap for us kind of maybe what you had talked about and discussed on Twitter after those magical Nash data came out. It's probably good to you know insert the caveat here that I'm a cardiologist talking about liver disease. So take it with like an entire truck full of salt. But but I think the principle that, that bothers me or bothered me is sort of the big question is what are we treating? And are we treating liver disease? Are we trying to prevent progression to advanced stage liver disease, you know, cirrhosis, transplantation, or cancer? Or are we treating cardiovascular disease or metabolic disease? And I think that was sort of my point was that we're really fixated on these fibrosis numbers, which are impressive, but that's sort of maybe a little too detailed. And, and I was hoping we could step back and think about sort of if you're a patient sitting in a doctor's office and considering taking this new, expensive, potentially dangerous medicine, what's the conversation like? Why do I want to take this medicine? What's it going to do for me? It seems like the FDA, from a regulatory standpoint, has set a kind of low bar for the approval of NASH drugs. And, you know, they basically said that you can get a drug approved for NASH based on a resolution of NASH or maybe an improvement in in the stages of fibrosis. From your comments, it seems like you're not really satisfied with that, with those kind of endpoints in terms of patient benefit. I don't know. I just don't think the question's been answered. I mean, there's all kinds of epidemiology suggesting that the more advanced your fibrosis stage is, the higher the likelihood you'll progress on to clinically significant liver disease. And, you know, there are some loose associations with advanced fibrosis being linked to cardiovascular risk. But again, that's never really been studied in a real, in a robust way, at least as far as I can tell. So that's just what I'm coming back to. I think you know the question is, if you're somebody sitting in a doctor's office, you've had a liver biopsy, and your comes back as stage F3 fibrosis, is that enough of a trigger for you? 
In other words, if you see this drug consistently and reproducibly reduces people back to F1 or F0 and get resolves their NASH, is that is that enough? And maybe it is enough. I, I, I just don't know. I think for me, at least, I'd love to know that we're preventing something that's just beyond basically a biomarker, which is what the liver biopsy is. I just don't know of any evidence to suggest that, that anyone's thinking about, well, is this actually going to prevent cirrhosis or reduce transplants? I think the analogy is probably very similar to what we talked about, you know, 20 years ago with lipids, you know, whether it was LDL or HDL. The FDA, you know, approved drugs. Azetamide was approved on the basis of its LDL reducing capability. And then, you know, as we progressed along, we sort of all agreed, hey, look, that's really good, but let's see what it does to a clinically meaningful heart outcome. I was going to say, to kind of change the subject a little bit along those lines, LDL, HDL were these surrogate markers and everybody was holding out for longitudinal benefit studies. And so pivoting to a different class of drugs, the PCSK9 therapies for cardiovascular disease, the two marketed therapies, now we have long-term data and we've seen the reductions in heart attack and stroke and other negative effects that come with, uh, with cardiovascular disease. And yet, if you talk to the manufacturers of those therapies, they're still struggling to get patients on drug and by virtue of that, make any money on them. So Ethan, I was curious, you know, you are a prescribing physician in cardiology. Has your practice changed since those long-term data came out? Yeah, it's changed. I mean, I think we had the benefit of a lot of really strongly supportive information with PCSK9 inhibitors. There was really strong human genetic data in both directions, both gain of function, loss of function, and it was in the same pathway as LDL. So for that one, I think, you know, most people expected there was going to be a reduction in risk. And and there was. Why the drugs are having trouble selling is a whole different long conversation that you guys are going to need to pay me a lot of money to do another podcast for. Or maybe the company should be paying people to think about why. But I, I think that's mostly on on them and it has a lot to do with the way they priced them and the way they rolled them out. But my prediction is that they'll start to tick up in terms of how people are prescribing them. Ethan, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. We lost a lot of friends over the years, you know, a lot. I lost so many that I feel like I got more friends in heaven than I do on, on the streets. That was a clip from Runnin, a documentary about a tight-knit community just outside of Boston grappling with the opioid crisis. The movie takes an intimate look at a group of friends who came of age as an epidemic took hold and morphed into a national nightmare. So we're joined by our stat colleague, Alex Hogan, a multimedia journalist who co-directed the film, and he's here to talk about it. Alex, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So tell us about Runnin. Tell us about the genesis of the project. Well, when I first started at Stat, Jeff, the head of multimedia, asked me, what uh, topics in our coverage that we do at Stat that you know interest me personally, and the first thing that came to my mind was the opioid crisis. I had lost a lot of friends at the time to drugs and, and in particular opiates. So I had done a couple projects on the opioid crisis. While working on these projects, I actually had to take some time off twice to go to funerals for other friends I had had that had passed away. So I spoke to Jeff and Rick, our executive editor, and they said, you know, what's going on with your friends here? And do you have a story? And I said, yeah, you know. Absolutely. The broad impact of opioids has been well covered recently in the last few years, but we've been dealing with it in, in Somerville, where I grew up for the better part of two decades. So they kind of gave me some time. I did some, a little bit of reporting. I shot a couple of interviews, and after we got some of the interviews back, and they were just so good and so powerful, uh, we decided you know, to flesh it out to a more full, short documentary. And where does the title Run In come from? 
Running was a term that kind of came up in a lot of the interviews. It's just kind of the, you know, ripping and running, you're, you're hustling, you're stealing, you're meeting up with drug dealers. It's the whole lifestyle of an addict. And it's a tough lifestyle. It's a hard lifestyle. It's hard on the users. It's really hard on their families. And, and it kind of had a nice double meaning as well because we found a lot of these, the users themselves or their family members talking to them said that they felt that they really used drugs to really run from their problems, escape from their problems, whether it be anxiety or depression. So we felt that running kind of had that nice double meaning. One thing you know that really struck me watching the documentary is that you know as you mentioned these are your friends so you're the filmmaker you're the journalist but also these are people you grew up with and you're in the movie and you react to the things that they say to you not solely as the reporter in the story but also as their friend and I just I'm curious what was that like on one hand it made things easier a little bit right because he's you know I, I had a personal relationship with almost everyone in the film so they trusted me already but that also on the other hand you know gave me an immense feeling of responsibility to get it right because they're trusting me with their, you know, the story of some of the darkest days of their lives. So the stakes just felt really high. But thankfully, you know, since it's been released, the reaction from everyone involved has been very positive. So I think when you watch this documentary, the, sort of the personal angle of this really stands out, and I think it makes it really compelling. But, but what else about the story that you tell here is different? This is really an origin story. We really trace it back to the origins of the epidemic because it started with OxyContin, as it does, you'll hear that from towns all over the country that are dealing similarly with the epidemic. And I found as early as 2000, 2001, there were robberies for OxyContin in Somerville. And, you know, OxyContin was only released in 1996. So we're very much at the very genesis of the coal epidemic. From there, you know, we trace it. And the same thing you'll hear all over the country, it started with OxyContin just taking the pills orally. And then they start, you know, develop a tolerance. You start snorting the drugs. And then when you snort the drugs, after a while, they became so popular and the pharmacies started being, you know, locking themselves down and became harder to get, more expensive. By now you have a really bad addiction. It made it very easy and tempting to switch to heroin, which is a much more dangerous drug. You know, the dosing's not as consistent. And people started dying. So Alex, where can we watch Runnin'? Uh, you can find the documentary. The link is at uh, www.statnews.com slash runnin. Uh, that's R-U-N-N-I-N. It's available to stream for $10, uh, 25% of which is going to be donated to the Alex Foster Foundation. Alex Foster is a friend of mine uh, whose story is in the film. We interviewed his parents, and his parents run the foundation. And the charity's mission is to help users and advocate for better treatment options. Thanks, Alex, for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Guys, do you know what time it is? I think it's time for another lightning round. So one of biotech's most prolific and charismatic serial entrepreneurs had a rough week this week. Adam, what happened to Flex Pharma? So Flex Pharma is a company that was founded by Christoph Westfall. And this week, the company sort of basically blew up. Their lead drug development program, which was kind of in a mid-stage clinical trial, was discontinued. And now they've laid off a lot of employees and they're looking at quote unquote strategic alternatives. So Adam famously called Westfall, quote, the biotech industry's Arctic ice cube salesman, end quote. And to be fair, he has left the CEO role of the company. But I think this failure doesn't shine well on his track record. No, I mean, Westfall is perhaps most famous for founding the company Sertris, which was developing drugs based on something from red wine that could conceivably forestall aging. And GSK bought that company for a great big amount of money and everybody was happy, but then began a series of unfortunate events at Christoph Westfall companies. The story here is really not about flex per se. It's more just the fact that 
Christoph Westfall seems to create companies, get private financing for companies, take them public with a certain amount of hoopla, and then later on, they all just sort of fade away. Now, usually the, the story here is that Christoph is usually out of those companies by the time that they blow up. And so you've got to wonder, like, how many times can this happen again? From what we understand, Damien Christoph is forming another company. Is that correct? Yeah, the Boston Business Journal reported that Christoph has founded a private biotech company um, in the field of immuno-oncology. And so I guess that kind of answers your question. There's, there's at least one more go-round. Well, we think there is. We'll see what kind of investors he can line up for it. Hey, remember Adyi? It was that questionably effective and tied to fainting and not okay to mix with alcohol female libido drug that won FDA approval pretty controversially a few years ago and then went on to be a commercial non-entity. So the maker of Adyi was Sprout Pharmaceuticals, which then got acquired by Valiant Pharmaceuticals for what was like a billion dollars. The drug flopped and Valiant basically gave up on it. And now kind of Sprout is being resurrected. Is that right, Rebecca? Yeah, so the company is relaunching the drug. It's relaunching it at half the price. And the thing that really caught my eye in, in reading Bloomberg's story about this uh, relaunch is the method by which Sprout is going to be reintroducing the drug. They're using a telehealth model. So essentially, doctors online can diagnose the condition and prescribe the drug and then send the drug to patients by mail. And I think that raises a lot of questions here about the practice of medicine. Are we going to see more positive diagnoses for this condition? Well, and it just resuscitates a lot of the debates that were going on back when this drug was going through the FDA review process, one of which is the condition that it's approved to treat, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which basically just means a lack of sexual desire. There was a lot of debate from women's groups and others about whether that's a real thing, and calling that a diagnosis is almost sexist in a way. It implies that there is a optimal level of sexual desire that women should have. And so, you know, to your point, Rebecca, now that there's a profit motive involved and dial up a diagnosis, I think that'll be really interesting to watch. So now let's talk about aspiring newspaper baron, healthcare billionaire slash stat fan, Patrick Soon He told Reuters this week that he's planning to take a new company public. It's called Nant. And he's going to use money raised from this IPO to develop a pipeline of cancer drugs. So two observations here. One is it sounds like this is the public version of Nant Cell, a private company that um, has long been in Soonchong's Nantworks portfolio. Another observation, Soonchong is the source of the Reuters story which suggests that he's having trouble raising said money. So I picked up on that too when the story came out. It seemed very odd that the story basically quoted Patrick Soon-Chiang as saying that he wants to go public. You know, if he was getting a lot of interest from investors, he wouldn't be doing that. And you could kind of understand why public investors might be skittish about putting money into a Patrick Soon-Chiang company, because the two publicly traded firms that he operates, NantQuest and Nant Health, are now trading at about $3 a share and went public far, far north of that. But as journalists, I think we can all endorse his investing a little bit more in the LA Times. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Big thank you to Hyacinth Empanado and Dom Smith, who produced this week's episode. 
Jeff Del Vicio is our senior producer and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a standing reminder that we cherish your feedback, whether it's recommendations for future topics or future guests or really anything whatsoever. And you can email us at readoutloud at statnews.com. Just don't send us any ideas for future PabNab parties. Thanks.